for those nights when you can hear the sound of a dog barking? Is it a dog, or is that the howl of a werewolf? When you hear a clown laughing at you, or the roar of a 1950s engine coming at you full speed, join us as we go into the Macroverse. Right, everybody, welcome to Into the Macroverse. My name is Levi Hill. And I'm Jacob Willett. And welcome into this journey, into a a deep, in-depth look at the cinematic universe of Stephen King. And this week, we're going to be talking about the film on Netflix, 1922, which is an adaptation of the novella. So that's that's what it's adapted from, was the novella? Yeah, it was a novella. It was made from the uh, novella. Okay. I always kind of forget the difference between novel and novella, not going to lie. Uh, I think the only difference between a novel and a novella is the fact that a novella is like more of a short story than it is a uh, actual novel. Okay, so it's a short story, much like the body is for Stand By Me. Yeah, it's essentially more like a... Instead of, instead of let's say, 130 page, like maybe 60 or 70... So we're going to be talking about this, and I would like to mention before we really get into it, uh, this film does feature a common actor that we have seen multiple times in the macroverse, and that is the ever-reliable Thomas Jane, who, if you don't recognize him, was in The Mist and was in Dreamcatcher. Yes, he was one of the main characters in Dreamcatcher, and are we talking about the short series, The Mist, which I'm assuming they canceled, by the way? No, we're talking about the actual feature-length film, one of Stephen King's greatest movie adaptations, just solely based on money alone. Yeah, the 2007 one, to be to be precise, correct? Yeah, that's the one. I do want to talk about the series at some point, though, because I've been waiting patiently for about six years now, waiting for another season, and I don't think they're doing it. Nah, I think it's safe to say that they canceled that one out. So sad and so frustrating. It really is, but I think that we should really cross-examine them together and just see what... But that's for a later episode. I'm good with that, yeah. Stay tuned for the next few weeks, because we're going to have a lot popping out on a bi-weekly basis every Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Central Time. That's what we are, correct? Pacific Central Central? I don't know. We're, P- we're, we're California time. California time, yeah. Close, close yeah. enough, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, let's... Well, uh, what are your initial thoughts on this movie? So I remember I watched this back when it um came out on Netflix because it was an original in 2017, and all I remember was that it made me very uncomfortable and kind of made me hate rats. And upon revisit, I really wasn't initially like I didn't really like it to start off with, and then it kind of grew on me over time. I mean, I would say the editing is pretty pretty decent. Uh, there is some good sound design, and just the sheer amount of rats. I don't know if they CGI'd them or if they just filled a room with rats and let them feel free to do their thing. But it definitely is a film that feels very grimy and uncomfortable 
And that's kind of what Stephen King always kind of tries to do. Yeah, and I really like the settings for this film. Like, they really mastered a lot of the design and, like, the backdrops of all the shots, which I thought was masterfully done. And I just kind of wondered, you know, about the rats, like you were saying. Like, as a director, do you just walk up to someone like, hey, uh, don't mind if we infest your building for a bit? we got to shoot the scene. I mean, I'm sure Jared Leto would be perfectly happy with this, you know, considering his whole <laughs> Suicide Squad rat um, extravaganza, which I'm sure some of you out there have probably heard of. But yeah, I don't I don't know the movie magic they do to make these rats bite off the uh, udder of a cow. That's a lot of... I don't know. But we're going to find out more about that when we talk deep into the story. So don't yes. go anywhere. You are now listening to Into the Macroverse a comprehensive, all-in deep dive into the Stephen King cinematic universe. We are your hosts, Jacob Willett and Levi Hill, here to transport you to the multi-dimensional playground known as Stephen King's Macroverse. Please kick back, put on your favorite pair of noise-canceling headphones, and join us as we journey into the Macroverse. Okay. So the film starts off in a rural part of Nebraska. What was the name of this little city? Not city, but this little town that they were in. Uh, I think our main character, Wilfred, says it. Um, I know they're trying to get to Omaha later on, but it's some strange city in Nebraska. Just for example, yes, exactly. One that you would never have heard of before which, as we know, is Stephen King's bread and butter. He loves to have his films take place in areas that you may not have known existed. It's Hemingford. Hemingford. Is that where it takes place? Yeah, Hemingford, Nebraska, and Shoot. I have never seen that on a map. I, I do know Hemingford, so now I feel like I contradicted myself. But still, <laughs> small town, everyone seems to know each other, which is very common across the entirety of the Macroverse. Like, almost every single one of his films tends to take place in a small town. It, it's true, and it's, this film's no different. No, not We at all. get, you know, farmers, everybody knows each other, everyone seems to be a little bit, you know, like friends. Yeah. And this film takes place behind the rows because our main character, main characters, like Wilfred, they live on this little remote farm and grow corn to feed themselves. They live off of selling their crops seasonally, and they aren't really doing too well to start off with. They are almost paycheck to paycheck, but of course, paycheck to paycheck in 1922 was that you have a house, you just can't use the heater. I mean, compared to like what we consider paycheck to paycheck, they're actually doing really well. I mean, they had like what over a hundred acres of land given acres. to. Uh... Yeah, that's a lot. I have about eight feet between my bed and my bathroom so i'm a little bit jealous of the space that they have but still by 1922 standards they were not living all that good and you can see it in this conflict between wilfred and his wife arlette yeah let me tell you arlette like right off the bat because she has this plan she has this plan to sell the farm sell the land which is 100 acres which at the time in 1922 especially nebraska with that good of land i can imagine they were going to pay a pretty penny for it oh yeah i mean it was in good shape like everything was well maintained 
Oh yeah, like you this... said uh, later on, it was a great harvest. It was a great harvest, yeah. And but um, it you know what I thought was weird about it automatically was that it was corn, especially in Nebraska. Always corn, yeah. Of course, that is right off the bat, alluding to yet another film which we have covered. Although you have not, you out there listening. You have not experienced our spring 2022 session of episodes, which we are currently rehashing and redoing, so we can do a comparison between us six months ago and us now. But still, Children of the Corn, we covered it, we enjoyed it, and of course, we have this idea that there is a character from other films that is using his influence within this film. But of course, we will save that for our theory time. Absolutely. For now, we're going to get back into the story, which is that uh, Arlette is looking to sell the land. That way she can take herself and their son, Henry, sometimes called Hank for some reason. Yeah, Henry Hank. We're we're not too clear what his birth name is. Well, it says Henry, but they just call him Hank because his mom hated the name Hank. And it was kind of out of spite. Yeah, it was kind of out of disrespect, I guess you would say. But ultimately, her main plan is to sell the land, go to Omaha with their family, and just start anew. Yeah, and she specifically mentions that she really likes dresses. She has a very elaborate wardrobe full of different dresses, and her big dream is to sell this plot of land in this house, move into the city, and own a dress shop. But for some reason... Wilfred just really does not have any interest in what his wife wants. He is introduced kind of right off the bat as a bit of a selfish man. It's kind of his say. It's very, I guess you could say, stereotypical for the time of 1922. The headstrong, head of the household kind of guy, his way or the highway kind of man. Yes. Very down to earth, ready to get, you're not afraid to get some dirt under his fingernails. Yes, but still, of course, very patriarchal for the time. And as we can tell... Arlette seems to be a pretty strong, independent woman, and she has her dreams, and she will do what she has to do to make it happen. And the central conflict kind of starts when she starts talking to other people trying to get that land sold. Behind his back, basically, right? Yeah, so what happened was, you know, we learned, because he's actually telling this from the point of view of him inside of a hotel many years later, and this is just him looking back onto what happened in 1922. And what happens is she gets this land inherited from her father and is in sole custody of this land and wants to do what she will with it, with or without his approval. Yes. But unfortunately, his say still seems to somehow triumph over the fact that she owns the land. She has the deeds to it. Like, I don't really understand how exactly they are able to allow that to happen but still he seems to have a very strong hold over this farm he really does almost like he's like deeply connected to it like even more than just you know this is my land this is you know who i am but no it's like his his roots are really inside this land yes it's really all he cares about because we rarely ever see this character leave the farm if we're going to be completely real Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he only goes out in case of an emergency, and even then it's, you know, to pry him away from that. Yeah, he would have done really good during the lockdown. The man is definitely a homebody, but in the sense that all he really wants to do is tend to the corn. Tend to the corn, tend to the land, that's all he knows. And I will say, one thing that bothered me in watching this entire film was the fact that he 
didn't open his mouth the entire time he spoke. Yeah, he spoke like he was chewing on like a big wad of chewing tobacco. The whole was... film. I mean, he does spit a lot, so maybe he does chew a lot of tobacco. But either way, like, open your mouth and fully enunciate what you're trying to say. <laughs> Just uh, trying to hear someone talk through their teeth entirely in only one corner of their mouth is a little infuriating. But, you know, I guess it kind of adds to the kind of man he is. Unwavering. <laughs> It does add to his character, yeah. And it also kind of brings out his nice little southern drawl, which I always find is fun to, you know, it's something I can't replicate. You can do a good little impression of a southern twang. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, it depends on what you're trying to do. But anyway, we find out later on that Hank, their son, is sweet on the neighbor's daughter. Yes. And her name is Shannon. And he's... He, he, they've been talking to him for a while. He's 14, she's 15, and her parents have a decent relationship with both uh, Will and Arlette. And it's not like they don't know each other. They're, they're practically neighbors. Yeah. And he's really not on board with the mom's idea either. No, he's not. He does not seem to really approve of it at all because he's mostly wanting to stay there because of the ulterior motives of him not wanting to be that far away from Shannon. But also, it seems like he enjoys the work he's doing with his father. Yeah, it, it alludes to him later on that, you know, as Wilf said, Wilf is what they call Wilfred because that's the most creative name on the planet. It's really lazy. It's just trying to be monosyllabic. Like, just say Wilfred. Use the two syllables. Because Wilf <laughs> sounds like like a couple other words that have some interesting abbreviations. I don't know, but, you know, it, it's what they decide to call him. And he tells them later on that... Uh, the farm is all that Henry ever knew and grew up with. Yeah, and it's like he wants to keep him kind of confined to this lifestyle, which, in my opinion, is kind of cruel. It really is, and he asks his wife to give him a, give him some time to think over, you know, what if he really wants to sell this land with her, and she agrees to it at first, but unbeknownst to her, that Wilf and Hank or Henry, whatever you want to call him, they call them both are planning something behind her back. Yes. And the way that Wilf alludes to it is, you know, all these problems wouldn't be here if she wasn't around. Yeah. And so the first idea that crosses his mind as well as the viewer's mind is just good old, plain old-fashioned divorce. But of course, if they divorce, she gets to keep the land. Because it's hers. And she doesn't want to, uh, I guess, divorce. I, I guess, you know, in a way, she still loves him. Yes, but she does. He even offered to buy the land from her, in which she said no. She doesn't want to do that, even if he does it in small payments. Because, in her own words, having little bits of money coming in is worse than having no money at all. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense. Like, we see him struggle to pay his bills. Like, he owes someone, you said it was $133? That's not till later on. Oh, my bad. Getting ahead of ourselves. I do that. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so she doesn't want to sell this land at all. She doesn't want to move from her own position. And that's when Wilf starts putting the thoughts inside of Henry's head. Well, we got to get rid of this. Because, as Wilf said before, there lives two kinds of men in a man. And that's, you know, who he is normally. And the conniving man. One who whispers thoughts in and kind of has influence when no one's around and the conniving man is taking over Wilf because he hates his wife yeah he really does hate his wife 
and it's it, upsetting. She did seem like a really honest person. And we see that in the time that, you know, Wilf is trying to convince Henry. Henry's kind of standing up to his mom and, you know, her authority over him to the point where he says, leave off, you're ruining this family. And she gives him, you know, a nice peppering on the cheek. A really hearty slap. Like, that was that was no joke. <laughs> no, that was enough to make a grown 14-year-old boy that looks 17 cry. Oh, absolutely. That's, a, that's you know, some meat to that slaps. It was hefty. Yeah, that, that was like you yeah. had a sandbag in your hand. She hit him. I mean, when she reeled back, she really reeled back, slapped him right across the face, causes him to cry. And we see that that, that kind of sets it in that Henry decides, all right, yeah, let's kill her. Yeah, it's really scary that all it takes is a little bit of good, good, uh, good old fashioned corporal punishment. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one to say that you should smack your kids, but if they're getting up in your face like that, you know, I, I feel like she really wasn't being harsh with him, in a way. But you know, that's just me at the time, and especially in 1922, you probably did a lot worse to children back then. And I mean, he was a 14 year old boy, and we don't get the impression that these parents ever hit their kid. But I mean, he's 14 years old, getting a little bit too cocky. And standing up to the only authority in his life. So even though I don't agree with anything involving hitting or punishing kids, he's a teenager. So a good little slap across the face in this instance is kind of valid, especially for the events that follow. I mean, and the fact that he was really right up in her, you know, she did what I guess she had to do. But that, you know, that they decide to have their plan. The plan is to agree with her. So Wilf tells her that, you know, it's a good idea to just go to Omaha. She wants to open up a dress shop. Will's going to get a decent education, and Wilf is going to take a job as a mechanic. Yeah. This leads her to uh, want to celebrate, as anyone would, as she said, that the boy talks sense to the man. And she gets very, very wine drunk. I think it was more than wine. She had a couple of beers there, some wine, a little bit of everything. It was a well-rounded mix of both clear and dark liquor. And she definitely is a little bit of an uncomfy drunk to be around. She says some kind of weird things in front of their son, Henry. She spills wine on her and s tells Wilfred to later on in the night to suck the wine out of her clothes. And she does also talk about her son's relationship with Shannon and is kind of implying them to do things, saying it's okay, which, you know, it really isn't. And that does leave a mark on Henry. He doesn't want to hear that. He doesn't want to hear this nastiness coming out of his mother's mouth that's indecent, especially for, yeah. you know, a 14-year-old. Very indecent, especially because, I mean, 14 years old and in the 1920s, the, uh, the sex education was rather lacking, I would have to imagine. And the fact that apparently, as they said, 14 is not too young to get married around them parts at the time. Which is scary to think about, because as a 14-year-old, I don't think I had any interest in any of that whatsoever. Oh, absolutely not. I was way more concerned with, like, video games and stuff. Exactly, because that's all you really need in life. At least at 14 years old. At like 14 years old, yeah, and then you don't really have that much experience to, you know be getting married or raising children but at the time you know maybe it was different in 1922 yeah we gotta look at that from a century before we gotta look at it in antiquity i guess you could say it's been a hundred years a good, good hundred years almost exactly actually because this does take place late summer early fall 
if I'm remembering hmm. correctly. How convenient, yeah. Very convenient, yeah. We are basically a hundred years to the dot right now. Mm-hmm. So that night after uh, Arlette goes to bed, you know, she's clearly passing out drunk, can handle her own alcohol with the amounts that she consumed. That's when they get together and get the plan. Yeah, and personally, I think there are much better ways to resolve this situation than murder. But Wilfred and Henry have, or Hank, I don't, I don't know, have seemed to make up their mind that this is the only way, which I think is a little bit of an over-escalation. But still, they start scheming, start dreaming, and they're basically ready to kill her at a moment's notice. Imagine that, a hundred years ago, you're like, well, knocked out my shoe, better go kill somebody. Yeah, it's it's rather insane that it's like a land dispute, like, that's all it is. And to me, I'm just like, you know, it does seem like they're going to drastic measures to get this land, when I'm sure, you, you know, if he could afford a lawyer, any lawyer could have at least gotten him something, because he is the husband. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure in the 1920s, especially with marriage, once you marry a man, they kind of tended to take over the property. They tended like, to take over a lot, even though her lawyer assured her that the land is hers. There's always some sort of say, especially back then, because, you know, culture was a lot different than what it is now. Yes, and not in good ways. No, it wasn't. So, it's it's hard for me to imagine that there was any... No, there was no other solution aside from murder. But that's what they decide to do. And Wilf goes ahead and gets himself a kitchen knife. He wants to be a Michael Myers for a little bit. Yeah. A very and... bland, basic kitchen knife, but I guess it does the job for a simple old want to live off the farm, Wilfred. It does, and this is evident because even Henry makes a comment about it saying, why can't you just use the pillow? And he says, ah, it's going to be too slow. She's going to suffer too much, you know. Funny that yeah. he takes that into account when he's going to stab her. Yeah, because personally, I think being stabbed in several spots would be a lot more painful than a good old smothering. I mean, you've seen the Three Stooges movie, or maybe you haven't. <laughs> but I remember that pillow scene from when I was a kid, and it doesn't seem like the worst way to die. I mean, I'm sure it sucks, but I'm sure it's better than being lacerated. And so, with, yeah, I can imagine that, and I'd rather have a good little... Hello, cuddle, than getting chopped up. Exactly. At least you're dying in co some comfort. Especially and if so, it's one of those nice memory-cooled pillows. I think they just had feathers back then. Uh, that's not as cool, especially if you start choking on the feathers. But either way, we forgot to mention that Wilfred is now using his son's crush on Shannon to, to manipulate him into going through with this plan, saying that if they move, he's never going to get to see Shannon again. And I think that's really cruel because he knows how much he likes Shannon, especially with the wife's comments and whatnot. And he yeah. tells them that they will surely break up and he will never see her again. Yeah, pretty terrible thing to say to your 14-year-old son, especially when we're assuming that this is Henry's first real love. Yeah, you know, it's starting out puppy love. You know, he's just figuring out the world. You know, I'm sure this means a lot to him. And he just kind of manipulated it, just like his wife is manipulating all kinds of other things. So, in a way, he's just as bad. Yes. And so we get to the night of the murder. She is dead asleep, very, very drunk. And... Wilfred gets the knife. 
Henry gets a burlap sack and they go upstairs, cover her head, and Wilf misses a few times the neck. Yeah, he instead just gave her little, like, non-fatal slits around her throat, which is just infinitely more painful. And she struggles. She she really struggles to not get killed She's here. suffering. She's crying out, fighting back. And they're just trying to get this thing over with. Eventually, they get, you know, the kill. They just slice her neck open. She dies. And they're just laying there tired. I think smothering would have been a lot better. But at the same time, Wilfred has a gun. Like, we know he has at least the Winchester rifle. Maybe not at this point. We don't We don't see it at this point. But you think I'd live off the land, take care of cattle, and tend to the corn type of guy wouldn't have a pistol in his nightstand or something like that? Like Shotgun, you know, lever action at the time. It, it's standard. Yeah, and I mean, I get that the shotgun would have made it kind of hard to cover up the murder because, of course, their plan is to cover up this murder. They have a whole alibi that they draw out. To disguise mm-hmm. the fact that they murdered her in cold blood in her own bed. Cruel. Well, it's a horrible way to go out. And so they just kind of wrap up the body in these sheets. And drag her out. And as they're dragging her out, Henry takes the stiffest fall I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, that was actually like a, that was a hard-ass fall. Like, that would look <laughs> painful. Like, He's I think just you walking trying to carry. Looks at his dead one. Oh, man. <laughs> Literally, like, clonks to the ground in, like, the most, like, brutal way possible. But that was, like, enough to, like, give give a regular man a concussion. I mean, I okay, I've, I've grown up in the dirt. You know, I, I, I've grown up playing outside and whatnot. I've taken some spills, but they never sounded like that. No, that was, that was a big thud. That was, that was right in the noggin, just crack, and just thud right in the dirt. But they just unceremoniously toss the dead wife in. Into the and well. then, oh yeah, they just drove her to the well that seemingly has been dried for some time. Yes, this is an out-of-commission well. Looks like it doesn't really work anymore, and so they decide that this is probably the best spot to hide a body. And to be honest, I don't think it's the greatest spot to hide a body, just because it's a little bit suspicious to be like, oh yeah, you know, we filled in this well. Well, they have a plan for that later, which later on they start telling everybody because the next day, after they clean up the blood using cold water, mind you, because for some reason, Wilf knows how to clean up blood very, very well. And he doesn't do laundry, so he shouldn't know that unless he listens to his wife. And he doesn't listen to his wife, so I don't know how he knew this cold water trick unless he really was the conniving man he seems to take very deeply into his central personality like he really embraces this conniving man he really does and from the next morning they wake up and they take a cow over the well and the wood breaks the cow falls in doesn't die mind you and he goes in gets the winchester and gives it up one good pop and then they have an alibi yeah it was really terrible to watch because that was a very very friendly looking cow and I don't know, like, you would think, I mean, I guess now that they can kill the wife, it would be a lot smaller of an ordeal to kill the cow. But come on, that's your cattle, and you're going to do it dirty like that? It was really hard for me to watch because, you know, I, I've seen a lot of horror movies, as you know, Jacob. We've both seen our fair share of, you know, shock films, different things. 
and you know especially in Stephen King we've seen a lot of blood but animals always have a special place with me and just to see one go out like that and we don't see it get hurt on screen luckily but we hear it and that's just enough to break my heart it's very tragic it's always funny how we seem to have more empathy for the animals than the actual characters but you know what can i say i I like some tri-tip steak and, you know, I bet they named that cow Burger, you know, tenderizing a little bit with that fall. It, it was definitely tenderized because that was a, that. <laughs> speaking of thuds, that was a thud. That was a what? Probably over a 1,500 pound animal. Dropping what? 15 feet? 15 feet on top of the body of his dead wife, Arlette. Who magically, mind you, got out of her coffiny wraps that was tied up. And is sitting in an upright, perfect position looking up. Yeah, and she doesn't get crushed by this cow, which fills up the entire diameter of this well. I mean, she just this is really extremely agile corpse. Very. It is yeah, worth yeah, it noting is. that before <laughs> the cow goes down in the well, the rats are already going after Arlette. And in a kind of weird twist, Wilfred's kind of mad about that. He gets you right, yeah, because he's kind of like looking at this dead body, which he killed, mind you, of his wife. Yeah. And he's kind of looking at them like, you know, how dare you desecrate my wife's body, even though I threw her in a well. And it's really disgusting because the rat's the rat is like eating her tongue inside of her mouth. And I mean, it's... if I saw that, that would be scarring. But he's like, don't touch my wife. You know, don't touch my wife, I killed her myself. And then he throws a, <laughs> throws a whole cow down there to crush the rats. And still misses. Still misses, yeah. I don't I don't know what's wrong with this man's aim. I also don't know where the rats came from. Now, I understand that in the time of a cornfield there are going to be a lot of rats, but at the same time, there was a lot of rats in There's... this small well. Unceremonious amount that I can't even describe. It is a biological terrorism amount of rats. Like, that is like it, an ecosystem-destroying amount of rats. It's it's enough to cause a decent amount of damage to the farm. Yeah, they're, like, eating through everything. But, of course, that carries on later on. So, but, as we see this, you know, the sheriff comes to town, the uh, lawyer... I'm sorry, a lawyer comes from a firm from which the wife was talking to it about selling the land. And he wants to speak to the wife, but they have a... Decent alibi at the time, because he did say in 1922, if a man's wife left, that's no one else's business, aside from the man and his wife. So he came up with this elaborate story that he went out, and as um, Henry went to school, she was gone. She took her favorite clothes, good jewelry, $200, and left. But it was actually in the nighttime that she supposedly left, when they were asleep, because he mentions that she... Right? I think so. I think so. They, they mix up their alibi, but it's generally the same idea that she leaves. Yeah, she takes one little suitcase and goes. And of course, he questions, why didn't she take more clothes? And he goes, I don't know. We had two suitcases, but she didn't take it. And her nice pair of well-worn shoes are under the bed. Which, you know, as the lawyer went there because he wasn't able to go inside, so he sent the uh, sheriff to go check things out. And like I said, they did find the shoes, but as Wilf said, she took the canvas ones. I don't know why she didn't take those ones. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of funny because they are, for how premediated this murderer was, 
they are rather unprepared when it comes to giving a good alibi, but it works. Like, somehow, it manages to steer clear any ringing bells within anyone's head. It does. And, you know, everything seems like it's going well. You know, the husband, I'm sorry, Wilf is, you know, kind of a little bit rough on his son. But ultimately, they're, they're getting along, you know. Ma's out of the way. Farms getting 10 or 2. And as he said, it was a rather unusually great harvest that summer. It was, yeah. They were doing pretty well. But of course, as time goes on, Henry starts to take the toll of what he did. And it starts to kind of crush him. But before that, it's worth noticing these are some very sweaty characters. Throughout this whole movie, I just felt grimy. I yeah. needed a shower. Exactly. They were just covered in dirt and constant sweat. You would think that driving in someone's truck wouldn't be as hot as it was, but they came out of that truck, the lawyer and the farmer, drenched. It was, it was, now, it was Nebraska hot. I've never been in Nebraska, Jacob. This, I've never been there, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. But I no, do assume. Both. One day we should go check it out. We'll look at the children in the corn. Yeah, we should go. We should go find where they filmed it. Go speak to the children and be like, "Where are you now?" After that <laughs> film. That's a future episode. Yes. But for now, we see that you know Henry has made a drastic mistake. And what is that mistake? Well, based on the rather how might you say rather non wholesome comments his mom was making about how sweet he was on Shannon. Turns out he got her pregnant. Yep, he took his mom's advice to heart like it was her last dying wish and went and got this girl at 15 years old pregnant. And I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone's ready to raise a child at 14 and 15. I, I can't imagine, especially when they are eating really British at the time. Like, they are not eating good. They're beans on toast. They are eating beans and toast and sausage. Hardy. Very hardy. And it really shows <laughs> like how much they really did need their wife to assure their quality of life. Because she was kind of guaranteeing it. As we see in the days after her death, everything just starts to go wrong. It really does. I don't know about you, but you know what, Jacob? The next time I see you, I'll make you some beans and toast and sausage. I'm okay, but thank you. <laughs> I'll even microwave it. You'll even microwave it? Oh, thank oh, you yeah. so much. Oh, yeah. But as we see here, you know, it's clearly shaken up. You know, Wilf is mad at Henry because, you know, they already have enough on their hands as it is, you know, trying to keep this farm going, trying to keep their lives afloat and dealing with the stress that they murdered, you know, the mom and wife. Only now they have to deal with henry saying that yeah i can be a dad you guys said it wasn't too young for me to marry anyway and he didn't even take into account shannon's parents you know what their opinion was and we find out that harlan corteri which is shannon's dad he's really really not happy about this i mean i i can't imagine he would be happy about that like that is not something that he wants his daughter to deal with and I'm sure, like, the lack of care that the other parents have about it makes it worse, you know? Without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, these become people who basically have nothing, and these are their neighbors who, you know, we won't lie, they're living uppity-up, you know, their crops are doing just as fine, but they seem to manage their money a little bit better. Yeah, they seem to be getting it kind of all right. They know what they're doing, at least, but not enough to raise the child of their child. 
And, you know, from that perspective, they uh, come over because there was a good harvest that year. Everyone had a little bit of pocket change. And, you know, Harlan's rather upset and tells uh, Wilf that he has a plan. The plan is they're going to send their daughter away to a Catholic school for four months. She's going to have her child. They're going to put it up for adoption and she's coming back home. Yeah, basically punishing Hank slash Henry for his very irresponsible choices, but also punishing Shannon. Yeah, they are. But at the same time, I look at that. I don't think it's that bad of a plan for what, you know, the times were. I mean, you know, there could have been a lot worse done. But there. just taking, removing her from the situation and taking her to a facility where you know they she would have given birth to that child, you know, in a fairly safe environment. Yeah, not in a house infested with... Later on, rats. I don't know if they really get rats, but I just assume there are rats everywhere. At least in Wolf's mind, there's rats everywhere. Yeah, exactly. But during this discussion, is that when they start to discuss the money aspects? It is, because that is when the same conversation that Harlan says, sending her to this school is going to cost them $300. And he knows that Wilf doesn't have that kind of money, so he says $75 is your share. Yes. And then did you convert that? I believe you did. I did. Do explain how much it's going to cost now. All he was asking for was $1,322 for getting his daughter pregnant, essentially. Yeah, we use that little conversion calculator that we like to use for old films just to get an idea and I mean, for a family like this, 1300 bucks is a lot to ask for, but also very it's... much a valid thing to request. Absolutely. I mean, this guy really just turned you know, their daughter's lives upside down, and he's definitely in no way, shape, or form prepared to be a father. I don't think she's prepared to be a mother at all, just based on how the characters are, because even she commented that, you know... Henry was acting really weird for the past few days, and she suspected that maybe he was sweet on another girl, which got her kind of, you know, upset. But it was just, I think, the stress that he murdered his mom. It was the guilt of the realization that he did something he should never have done. And I think at this point, he starts to kind of realize who his father really is. And And he's not a good man. No, he's not a good man. And is this when, I almost said Harold... Oh my god, I'm so used to using that H word. <laughs> that is when I think Hank runs away, correct? Well, not yet, because first, Wilf has to go find money. So he goes to the bank, talks to them, and they offer him a $750 loan. I didn't do the conversion on that one, but it is a lot of money, as we said at the time, if $75 is, on, is you know, $1,322. You can only imagine how much $750 is. I mean, just multiply that, multiply that by 10 yeah, so it's a it's a decent amount of money. About fifteen grand, yeah, by our today's lens. So he lot. goes, yeah, it is. So he goes home because he wants to, you know, think it over. But as he goes out of the bank, he looks in the car and he sees that his son took their truck and left because he was a life without Shannon is no life at all to him. Yeah, I mean that is really all his his only motivation really post murdering his mother. Is spending his life with Shannon. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty extreme thing to do. Be like, well, Dad, we killed Mom. I'm, I, I can't have this girl. Better leave everything. But it also was almost for the best. Almost, but at the same time, it's like, well, that's extreme. 
You know, you don't know what you're doing yet. Yes. 14, but he's got this elaborate plan that he's going to go out and he's going to get her. He's going to save her from this Catholic place that they put her in. And that's exactly what he sets out to do. And it is worth noting at this time that we can 100% confirm that this land that they are living on is cursed. Very much so, because not only did Wilf uh, kind of agree with Henry when he said it first earlier on, but it seems like nothing seems to be growing and just rats are everywhere. And when we say rats are everywhere, there's a plethora of rats wherever you look. Yeah, there are like there aren't there there isn't even enough corn for the sheer amount of rats that are just like almost spawning. You would say like they're coming out of the ground. They're just everywhere, and wherever it is, you know, he's seeing glimpses of his dead wife wherever he goes, and her rotting corpse, and just the smell because you can see his face change when he sees him or before he's even around or sees her. So you can imagine, you know, the stank of a dead body as they filled in that well before and just the thought that, you know, that he's going insane. Not only did he lose his wife, but he lost the other person who he deeply really cared for. I can really say Wolf was a man who loved his son. Yes. And a lot. now his son is gone. Cause he just wanted to give him the future that he was trying to build. Of course, exactly. he did it all the wrong ways, but he was trying so some credit where credit's due, but you know the rats kind of kind of tip the scales a little bit. Just a tad, and I'm like, yeah, rats. But we see that he goes off because he's ready to uh, essentially talk to his son because he said uh, that Henry is at a counseling age now where he has to take him into account when making decisions with the land and, you know, mortgage and whatnot. And he finds a note and that kind of sends him off the, you know, deep end. It does. From here, he just kind of borders onto insanity because living a life alone on this cursed land at that point would drive anyone crazy. It really would because he goes home and realizes that, you know, Winter is coming. He's got a nasty hole in his roof. His barn is falling apart. Rats are attacking his cows that are eating off their udders. Yeah, that, that was gross, and I was hoping we'd kind of skip that, but I guess we might as well bring it up. He wakes up one night to hearing a bunch of terrible groans coming from his barn, goes in there and just sees, yet again, a plethora of rats. And it's just so nasty. They are eating these poor trapped cows alive. And then he realizes that for some reason there is a pipe in this barn that directly connects to the well. And this so, proves, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. Just how rushed his plan was because he didn't consider the smell and that terrible, terrible stench of death that would radiate from that pipe into the barn and also give these ever spawning rats away into his livestock and so he goes and creates a bunch of cement in a bucket and fills the hole up to keep his cows from being eaten alive well at least he took care of the cows yeah at least he cares about the animals you know but as we see later on you know he goes home and he's trying to busy himself and decides that he needs to find this money 
And before, since he can't find the money, he's searching the top of uh, the closet that where his wife used to carry her clothes and gets bit in the hand by a rat. And this is one of the nastiest looking bites I've ever seen in a film. It's just two nasty holes in the webbing between your thumb and your mm. index finger. Oh. And it almost immediately looked infected. And it is worth saying that this kind of deems Wilfred as the real rat man. Bombity bomb. Bombity bomb. And like, come on, like, even back then, they should know, like, give this man a rabies shot or something. Like, he's got beer. Just pour some on there, and he didn't. He didn't know, but he did drink away his pain. He seemed to find some sort of medication that his wife had. Was it like. Tonic. Was it a tonic? Was that what it was? It was something, but it had a little bit of that extra kick they had in 1922. Yeah, probably lidocaine or a mix of cocaine, something, Opium. something. Opium really could be a plethora of drugs. And, of course, in the spirit of Wilfred and his quest to destroy himself, he likes to mix all of these pills with alcohol. With his alcohol and his strange medicine. Yeah, not you're not supposed to take any medication really with alcohol and he just breaks that rule because he's a man's man he's a man's man lives off the land has them cows so he's hallucinating he's seeing his dead wife or was he really hallucinating we can't tell but he does hear something that night something different and that is his wife is after him now yes and now as that... he falls go ahead now that he is, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. Now that he's alone, he's kind of just subjected to this mania, this terror that's running through his mind or in real life. But of course, they blur the lines between what's, a real, what's real and what's in his head. And like I said, his wife comes after him and she chases him. You know, I wouldn't even say chase. She just kind of like, you know, teleports around. Yeah, she does kind of just teleport, comes out of wherever she wants, really. And he falls down the stairs into the basement, and she slowly descends down. All these rats and infestation just at her feet. And it's just everywhere it grows, covering the entirety of the stairs, mind you. And she whispers some sweet nothings into his ear. Maybe she just wanted a nice good old kiss. Yeah, but she gets real close and personal up to his ear. And basically, this is when she starts to reveal... What's happening to Henry slash Hank in the background of the film? And that is just a tragic story in itself. If you've seen Bonnie and Clyde, it's essentially what happened to them. Yeah, they're Except called... The Sweetheart Bandits. That's what it was, the Sweetheart Bandits. So basically, to kind of ensure their living, they go on a crime spree. Robin banks, gas stations, grocery stores jacking cars, doing whatever they can to make their living, and they're doing it with all that hormone-induced teenagerness that basically brings them to their demise. And all of this is told in great detail from Arlette's Wendigo corpse into Wilfred's ears. Yeah, that, that whole spree they did was one that I think is a really questionable even for 1922, how they managed to, you know... Let's rob a bank without a mask on. No one will notice me. He did wear a mask at some points, but the mug or the the pictures on the front of the newspaper 
show them in full face. Like, there's no hiding it in a small town, in a small state with not that many people like Nebraska. And so they go out and they find this shack because, you know, what's her name? Shannon got shot. Yeah, she got shot by... And so they they, they go to this cabin and, and during the incursion, you know, he's trying to save her. He ends up killing the guy who owns the cabin, dies, succumbs to her wounds. Yeah, she does. And that is when Henry, he leaves to go try to heal her, comes back, and she's already gone. I don't know. That, that would break me, too. If, like, if, you know, I went through all this trouble, killed a few people, robbed a few banks, only to have my lover die. Yeah, I'd do me in, too. His pregnant lover, let's not forget. Yeah, you know, he's got two his two loves of his life, you know, his, his girl and his unborn child, which I assumed he loved. I would assume so, yeah, considering they they were pretty clear that they were going to keep it. Yeah, but Them unfort- yeah, unfortunately, fate had another plan, and he lays down and takes his own life next to her. Yep, he actually goes and buys a gun earlier on from just a regular armed dealer, I guess. And, of course, that is what pulls his plug. That's that's the end of Henry and Arlette. Not Arlette. Shannon. <laughs> Shannon, sorry. Yeah, but tragic end for those two. I really, I really didn't want Henry, did I? No, I mean, I would have been okay if Henry died, but not Shannon. Shannon really didn't deserve any of this. And even though Henry was a kid, he, he still made a pretty horrible decision that would worry me for a 14-year-old to make. Even being, like, manipulated by your father, that's a big decision to make. It really is. Just sit there and be like, you know what, Dad? How dare you? I'm going to go rob banks. But from here, um, we see that good old Wilf is taken from the sheriff and taken to a nearby hospital where he gets his hand cut off from the infection. Yeah, he gets And it was a nasty infection. Oh, it was, I mean, terrible. So bad that they had to, like, completely chop off his hand. And it really put a stump on the day. <laughs> took the words right out of my hand. And, <laughs> and then simultaneously, while he's looking at his hand, he is told by, I forget this character's name. It's the sheriff. He's told by the sheriff that his son and his son's girlfriend are dead. And that they were criminals. Not only that, but then he tells him that, you know, a woman was found on the side of the road missing two back teeth dead. And they assume that it's his wife. And he, of course, goes with it. Because even though his life is basically coming to an end, he still thinks he needs to follow his alibi as best as he can, despite the insane circumstances behind it. You know, you, you gotta stick to the story. You do, yeah. He's he's really devoted to his alibi, and it really is a strong alibi. It is. It's one that is really unwavering and that you can use in any situation, in my opinion. I think that it's one of the most powerful alibis because at the time, he had everything right. You know, women did just walk away from their husbands at the time. He had a decent reason for covering up the well. And almost, you know, even though everything was a little bit rushed, it was a good story. It was, yeah, and it was like... I wouldn't say it was bulletproof, but he's even so con- convinced in his connivingness that early on he's like, Sheriff, why don't you go look in the well and see what I'm talking about? Yeah, invites Th- him to cocky. see a dead cow. Yeah, yeah, that's cocky. That is very cocky, but 
it's from here that you know we find out there's funeral processions being held for the children we see that henry's face was eaten apart by rats his whole face gone yeah it was it was not a nice sight these rats have some big teeth because they they do some serious damage brutal so we see that uh, Shannon's funeral was actually pretty nice. You know, everyone from the town kind of showed up, mourned her, and... Uh, it had a really good turnout. It did. You know, I hope they had dinner afterwards. I'm sure they did. And then we see Henry's, and the only person in attendance is the priest and Wilf. And don't forget his dead wife. She is also there within the pews. And, of course, we don't know if this is his sick imagination as he descends into mania or if it's the reality like if it really is like not something inside of his head but of course we'll get into that yeah because you know nothing seems to be going his way anymore and he decides that well he wants to sell his land finally so he goes to the neighbor and the neighbor who was shannon's dad tells him no he's not going to buy the land to stay away from him and it turns out his wife left him as well so, with nowhere else to go, and with a cow literally living in his living room with him, yes, <laughs> comes home to find the cow dying as well. He takes out his good old-fashioned Winchester and finishes the cow, which was another really hard scene for me. Don't forget, he one-hands it. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of horror movies, and I will tell you, his one-handing of a long arm is deplorable. It is, and it's... We don't really know what happens to this cow, but I'm assuming the rats were infesting the place. And as a cow that's not locked up behind its little barn enclosure. In a snowstorm, mind you. In a snowstorm, runs away, likely trips on ice or on the stairs, because as we know, cows don't go downstairs, and falls on its side. Breaks leg, maybe, so it's lame now. It is, yeah. It can't get up. It's been cow-tipped by its own doing and had to be put out of its misery. Of course, I don't like seeing cows being executed, so this film was a little bit hard to cope with. It was. It took a toll on me. As you know, I like animals, and uh, you know, I had to go save mine before we recorded, but that's a different story. Yes, and we did forget to mention that this whole time Wilfred is in the future writing his confession in a rat-infested hotel. I, I think I mentioned it, but I didn't mention that there's rats currently, you know, always breaking in wherever he was. And yeah, they the are rats, following him. Mm-hmm. He's writing this all down on paper. It's kind of like his last confessional before he dies. And he's just waiting for the end. And unfortunately, you know, he tells him that he he sold the land eventually to the bank, which he didn't want to do. But he was so against that led to the death of his wife, the death of his son. But he finally did it and moved out to Omaha to move pallets. Yeah, he's doing some backbreaking work. Almost makes it seem like his job of tending the farm was easy compared to what he's experiencing. So, you know, there's tons of press always around him, you know, making the situation even worse because his son was the sweetheart bandit to terrorize Nebraska. Yes, he's definitely not wanting to be in that spotlight at this point. No, no, not especially, you know, finding out all that. And here's uh, his final words are just kind of him 
accepting that in 1922 the conniving man within him murdered his wife and got his son killed. And as he finishes writing, his entire bedroom is infested with rats. There are a lot of rats, and we keep saying that, but if you haven't seen this film, I'm assuming you are if you're listening right now, but that is a lot of rats. Like, and it's I'm disgusting. scared of them in general, so to imagine more than one, I don't even like mice. <laughs> it's nasty, but as he turns around, he sees the corpses of his wife, his son, and Shannon, and his son says, don't worry, Dad, it's going to be quick. Yes. And then it just fades to black and ends. Not before they pull out the knife that he used to kill his wife. Oh, thank you for that important detail. And that's the end of 1922. And of course, we were trying to figure out, as we were sitting here preparing for this episode, did he die? And was he killed by them, or did he kill himself? But you did look up the ending of the novella. I did, and unlike the cinematic version, in the novella we find out that he died by multiple bite wounds that were self-inflicted in the news clipping that it says, and that all of his papers were illegible because they were chewed to bits. Yes, and that he had his body entirely covered in bite marks. Mm-hmm, which were self-inflicted, apparently. Yes, which I don't understand because... They say that it's physically impossible to bite yourself enough. Like, psychologically, you cannot bite yourself hard enough to draw blood. Your body just won't let you. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, but at the same time, he is experiencing many. So did he die? Did he, was he killed by the spirits, or did he kill himself in a fit of mania? So, yes. Are we skipping character analysis because there are just so few characters? You know, I really want to take a minute to talk about them, so let's get into it. Let's get into the character analysis. We are the Macroverse Maniacs, diving deep now into our character analysis. Okay, we are back here for our character analysis. Let's start off with Wilfred. Wilf, I think, is a very, very unreliable narrator. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Your audio might be cutting out. I'm trying to figure out if that's going to show up in the recording. Uh, I hope not, but I, I, that's because I moved for a second. No, you're good. But yes, totally unreliable narrator because due to his mania, we don't know if what he's seeing is real or not. But based off of the fact that this does take place in the Stephen King macroverse, I have to assume everything he's living through has to be real. I assume so, but at the same time, he did say that he hated his wife, so maybe a lot of it is exaggerated, because it is coming from his first-person view of things, rather than an outside view, like a lot of Stephen King's works. So this is like a different spin on it, and in that sense, you know, I think that maybe everything wasn't as extreme as he made it out to be. But ultimately, I think that he was a pretty good guy altogether, just wanted to do what was best for his son and was trying to make a decent living out of nothing, but only was, you know, clouded by the conniving man. Yes. He was also a very strong victim of the American individualism. The ideology that you can't take help from anyone else. That everything you have to do has to take place within what you want. 
The self-made man. The self-made man works hard nine to five, picking corn, planting crops, and ultimately just living off the land. And he's Blue very, color. yes, he's very, very stubborn in his ways. And I, I, I agree with that. But you know, for what it's worth, I think Will did what he could, even though he's kind of a bad guy. He's both the protagonist and antagonist in his own story. That's true. I like that spin on that, actually, because he is. Mm-hmm. And now, what's your thoughts on Hank? I do feel bad for Hank because, I mean, he really was just a victim of his father's doings. Like, I mean, he's a 14-year-old boy, not used to, to defying his parents, because as we can tell, that whole situation at the dinner table with Arlette was not a usual occurrence. He doesn't usually lash out is usually a pretty obedient kid willing to work with his family to do what's needed, making the sacrifices that have to be made. Yeah, I think that he was a huge victim of circumstance was the the wrong way. And because of the extremity that his father took to, you know, let's just kill your mom. I think that played over and clouded his judgment when it came to the whole deal with Shannon, who I'm going to talk about next and his decision to run away and become the sweetheart bandits. Okay, yeah, let's get into that. And with that, that leads us into Shannon. And I think that above all else, she was the real victim of the story, aside from the mom who, you know, was portrayed as kind of kind of mean, you know, kind of a really harsh woman. Yeah, for real. Kind of indecent at times, especially drunk. Very rigid in what she wants as well. But also... I kind of admire her dreams a little bit more than those of our main character, Wilfred. But with Shannon in mind, I think that, you know, she really was innocent of everything. All she did was care about Hank and did whatever it took to be with him and tried her best to make him happy. Did what was best for her and, you know, with the social standings at the time... That was her man. That was her lover. And he came back. He robbed Banks enough to go find out where she was, get a car, and leave with her. And I think that, you know, she was just doing what she thought was best. And it might not be the best decision for a 15-year-old to make, but she was also in distress and pregnant from this kid. You know, so she was just a huge victim of circumstance, I think. She was. Sorry, I think earlier I was kind of still talking more about Arlette. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you realize that. But um, but no, she 100% is the true victim of the story because she was an outside force that was dragged into another family's set of fateful circumstances. She was. Speaking of fateful circumstances, let's talk about Arlette. What do you think about her? So, like I was saying before, kind of indecent, kind of also firm in her ways, but she had a vision because no one really wants their son to grow up working for their father their whole life and doing, you know, living living in a sheltered little bubble. She wanted to bring him into the city, start up a dress shop, and give him basically a life he's never seen before. A chance. A chance, yes, to experience something different. Rather unconventional for some small town Nebraskans trying to live. It it really was, and you know I, you got to respect her in that sense. And 
you know, the kind of fight she had in her, because she fought off essentially a grown man and a teenager. And that's a lot to fight off. That is a lot to fight off, especially well, when drunk. you're when exactly when you're still liquored up in multiple forms. Like she was drinking probably whiskey for sure, beer for sure, wine. We never did find out though if if uh, he sucked the wine out of the shirt. No, no, I think the shirt was pretty covered in blood afterwards. Yeah, and I'm sure that was left for just the rats. They were the oh, yeah. ones that got wine drunk after. <laughs> That's why they were eating everything. Exactly. They were like, hmm, this is a hint of grape and a little bit of steel. They're like, hey, Ratatouille, do you taste that beer? Oh, my God, yeah. Now there's an alternate universe where one of the rats gets a taste of fine Nebraskan wine and... A nice Nebraskan mom and decides they want to leave their small town and start up their own little restaurant they should hire us they should hire us yeah I, would, <laughs> I, I have restaurant experience I would do great but you know what um with that thought in mind I really don't think there's any other characters you know we could talk about Hanlon the the Shannon's dad but I don't think they really had a part to play and you know it was just a grieving man from circumstance yeah, they they were just more victims caught in the way of this family's fate. So, I would yes. say it's a good time for us to dive into our favorite part of Into the Macroverse. Theory, theory time. time. Yeah, so right after this break, be prepared for some theories about how this connects to the rest of the Stephen King cinematic macroverse. We've talked plot, we've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're all back. This is our favorite time. As you know, we've talked about the whole movie as a whole. We talked about some characters, our thoughts on them. Now let's get into the macroverse. What I've been dying to say this whole time is I think that this film really shows like Stephen King's like love letter to a telltale heart. So I have not read a telltale heart so do you want to kind of give that audience a little bit of that necessary detail absolutely so telltale heart is one of another horror writer who everybody knows edgar Allan poe the raven he wrote the telltale heart and it describes a man killing another man that he knew buried him under the floorboards felt guilty and could hear a heartbeat and went insane from it and eventually he thought that, you know, the cops were on to him, that everybody was on to him. Everybody knew he did it. So he tore up the floor, poured screaming, I did it. I killed him. And the cops were like, oh, my gosh, it's a dead body. And he went to jail and was killed, even though no one suspected a thing. And it was his guilt that led him to ultimately his fate, which I feel like this film in specific 
even though we're not it's not related specifically to the macverse but it's kind of like a love letter to that same story in a sense i think i didn't really see that and now part of me might have just unlocked memory that you know i think i might have actually read that in high school mm -hmm. and my memory kind of forgot about it unfortunately even though edgar Allan poe is a very talented writer i like the raven for example that, that's a work of his right yes okay good i'm not i'm not like delusional here but yeah yeah so in this one i think that instead of you know heartbeats he heard rats yeah he heard saw that, rats that wonderful little scratching gnawing sound coming out from the walls yeah thank you for that yeah you're welcome that's what there's your rats <laughs> But um, aside from that, I think that it's really interesting that this takes place both in Nebraska and on a cornfield. Yes, and I've been dying to talk about this. There are just too many things indicating to me that this is within the same universe as Children of the Corn. And in the episode that we did before, of course, you have not out there in the audience heard it yet because we will be releasing it later. We do talk about that. We do. We go into extreme depth about, you know, the strangest of this corn and a certain character, Randall Flagg, who you will remember from our previous episodes with The Stand. And we mentioned in The Stand that, you know, he was the one who controlling everything in Children of the Corn. It kind of seems like his influence as the conniving man is himself. Yes. Kind of putting those thoughts into Wilf and making him do things different. But oh my god, hold on one second. Audience, welcome to season two of Into the Macroverse. That's right, yes. We forgot to acknowledge that. We are on a new season, a new journey here to kind of redo what we did before and move on. Of course, this is our first time watching 1922 together and our first Macroverse episode about it. But we are going back and reliving our spring sessions with season two, adding on to a little bit of the Children of the Corn, because as you know, there is a lot of crossover between these films. Yes, and you know, as of, I think this is a great welcome into season two, as you were saying. But yeah, I think that he was there influencing everything. And instead of the crow which is his normal moniker we do know that he can change shapes maybe he was a rat but as well as that from the stand we do have rat man and from what we can tell randall flag did give that kind of power that rat man had or at least that sphere of influence to rat man and so who's to say that he can't change from crows to rats when he wants to Exactly. And, you know, I think that what, you know, it does take place in Nebraska, which is big for me because I'm like, everything that Randall does is a lot of it in Nebraska. We do find Nebraska to be one of those central hubs right next to, is it Maine? Yes, Maine. We, we think Maine and Nebraska are two of those central hubs for the paranormal activities in Stephen King's macroverse. Right. And for me, I'm just thinking that you know, this really relates because of the mania involved in the fact that he's seeing things. He's seeing his worst fears come to life. His worst fear being the death of his son. Yeah, and that was the one thing that really did push him over the edge. It wasn't the death of his wife. It wasn't the pregnancy of... of um, Shannon. Shannon, yeah. 
I keep forgetting her name for some reason. Sorry, Shannon. No disrespect. You killed it out there in your <laughs> role. Literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but, you know, I think that this this story does relate to the Macroverse in saying that Randall Flagg was directly an influence and was the conniving man living within Wilf. Yes, and, and we... We did talk about this during our watch-through, because this is our first time actually watching the films together, besides the remake of Firestarter. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we were talking about that, you know, he does have a lot of the same influences, a lot of chaos around everyone around him on a large scale. Yes. And seems to throw everything into a massive different, like, how might you say, spin on what normal life would be, and plays the waiting game he's a very very patient man because it always seems to be as if these families are succumbing to fate exactly and as we've seen before fate is generally determined by what flag wants it to be yes and we can also then connect this to the wendigos from pet cemetery I think we can in a way, but, and you know, it's also really hard to say because in the same light, you know, people come back differently and they didn't come back differently compared to the creatures in, uh, you know, Pet Cemetery. But the reanimating of corpses and seeing them alive again is very Wendigo-ish to me as well. I guess we can say Wendigo-esque then, but of course we are more focused on the flag. We are, but I do like the fact that you brought that out because if you notice... Much like in Dreamcatcher, in uh, let's say, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to mention Dreamcatcher. I got to confuse Pet Cemetery. A lot of the foreground is nasty and foggy. You're right, it is. And the land is like they said in Pet Cemetery, cursed. Yes, this is yet another Stephen King film where the land is cursed. And I think that maybe you're not far off. Maybe. The Wendigo and Flagger in cahoots. Or even Randall Flagg can be the Wendigo. Yeah. I mean, we know he yeah. can shapeshift, be in multiple places at the same time. Who's to say those three reanimated corpses were not just three different variations of Flag shapeshifting? Exactly. And we have been seeing that he can make, you know, multiple things of himself. Yes. Almost carbon copies. And with that in mind, that leads me to the question, how far, you know, was Flag going to go? And did he just do this for fun before he decided to start the stand? Did he was just toying with what he could do? Yeah, maybe this was just one of his initial experiments, one of his test flights. Because, of course, it's 1922, which is much earlier than the events of the stand, which takes place in the 70s? Right. Right, that's what it was. Okay. So, yeah, it's almost like he spent nearly five decades trying to practice his craft and just becoming the harbinger of chaos as we've coined him and what he does is he essentially telltale hearts an innocent man who just wanted to live his life peacefully yeah very true and with that thought in mind it leads me to wonder because at the end there is a question stated by Henry saying that he hopes there is no heaven or hell. That way there's nothing. But what about Flag? 
Because we do know that flag from the stand originates from hell or some sort of hellish landscape. Right. And that's explained later on in another movie that we're going to do, The Dark Tower. Yes, we do need to get into that beast of a film at some point or another. But that leads me to wonder, you know, let's say that this is a different pocket universe like we do say. Are all of them infected by flag? I mean, there definitely is that idea of corruption within really all these characters. I mean, we have um, Arletta being a little bit corrupted in maturity, I guess you would say. Right, too much rationality. A little bit kind of gross and grimy, much like Flag chooses, not chooses, but proves he can be in the stand. And I think that the land, being the land was cursed, like I said, maybe the Wendigos were about it. And being that he is he who walks behind the rose, who's to say that he wasn't there influencing it all as well. So that leads me to question, how many universes or lands are infected by the plague that is flag? And honestly, I have to answer with infinity, like we don't really know the bounds of this man's power but there are just too many clues in nearly every Stephen King film we've seen that he's there always watching in this film when he's doing his mechanic job and Wilfred's working trying to find a new job the rats are sitting above him on a ledge just sitting down and watching observing what he's doing just toying with him, playing with his food as we like, as we've seen Randall likes to do. Exactly, because he does kind of feed off of that fear of who he is. It's where he also gets his power from, much like another one of our favorite characters. And you're referring to Robert Gray, otherwise Pennywise the Clown? Of course I am. And with that thought, I wonder, are they in cahoots? Do they S- know each other? See, I always have to imagine that they're, they know of each other, but they're almost like competing. But maybe not competing in like an evil way, but in like a friendly type of game. Like, how much chaos can you really like do? Of, of one-uppings, if you will. Yeah, just constant one-uppings. Because, of course, I personally think that Randall Flagg is the far more superior villain in all of these stories because he seems to have more of an more of this uh again infinite sense of power like there is really nothing that can defeat him besides a big bomb to bomb <laughs> but even yeah. then we don't know if he was really dead from the conclusion and of the stand exactly and that leads us into you know the dark tower series and what goes on in that I'm very excited for that. So is that our next film we are doing next week? I think we should be able to do that. And stay tuned, everybody else, because we're going to start branching out soon from the Macroverse and just Stephen King and maybe taking a look at some other horror movies as well and see what we can connect with them as well. And I think a good name for that could possibly be Exit the Macroverse. where we Beyond get away... the Macroverse? Beyond the Macroverse even could work. I like that as well. I've been trying to toy with it, trying to figure out what has a nice ring to it. But it would make sense because a lot of the films, a lot of the horror films especially I've been watching over the past few months, I can't help but introduce that kind of sense of 
macroverse within them because like you can really think all of these supernatural forces can tie back to the king of horror Stephen King himself exactly and you know I think it's going to be fun to look at those and just cross examine them have a lot of fun with them and you know maybe we'll leave it up to you guys out there what should our name be what should come with you know beyond the macroverse exit the macroverse around the macroverse within the macroverse really like whatever because we want this to be more theoretical more speculative in the sense that there will be even fewer boundaries when we're looking at films that have no relation to stephen king but we're going to try to force it because... i wouldn't say force i'd say you know we're just having fun connecting some lines maybe pulling like that one meme that charlie day has you know, we're looking at the screen all weird. But you know what? Oh, I, think I like gonna... that reference. <laughs> I am a big It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fanboy. Mm-hmm. But, but you I... know what? I think it'll be fun. I didn't mean to say force. I more mean in the sense that we're going to try to frame our minds around always having a macroverse perspective. Because I took this course uh, last year at Palomar. It was a queer cinema course. And one of our assignments was to look at films that aren't typically um, from a queer lens and kind of find a way to pull it into that sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that's a lot done with a lot of cinematography as well. You can see, like, you know, different horror movies, that other kinds of horror movies, you know, always draw back to at least something. And for us in this sense, we're trying to connect the line back to, you know, Stephen King the laws around here and see what we can have fun with. And of course review and get to talk about some pretty awesome movies. Yeah. Because we like, we can really talk about any film at this point for as long as we want. But if we have that macroverse spin on it, it's just going to be even more engaging to us. So stay tuned and always remember, keep asking questions. Always keep asking questions, but we should plug our socials. We did recently, actually, create an Instagram account. It's called into the macroverse underscore, no spaces. From there, you can get an idea of what's to come, maybe some behind-the-scenes work where we show our live faces, because I'm pretty sure at this point, you have no idea what we look like. <laughs> That's true, and you know what? It's a great place to interact with both me and jacob you can share your theories with us you can share what you want to see with us going with the show what we can talk about on here and we always welcome to everything that you guys put out there and we're always thankful for you guys listening and want your participation into this journey with us yes and thank you for tuning in through this rather long journey i don't have a timer but i think we are at least an hour and a half deep at this point it was, and it was a lot to talk about. It was a great episode, but it you know, was. I think it's a great time to close it out. I do agree. So, so again, as always, uh, I think I'll, you under the intro, outro, or me. As always, I'm Jacob Willett. I'm Levi Hill, and this has been into the Macroverse. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time, and over these next coming weeks stay curious and again keep asking questions because it's these questions we ask that bring us down these boundless rabbit holes of ideas and theories and speculation and as we always say don't trust that sound outside don't go into the dark because you never know what you're going to find when you enter the macroverse
You've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett, and this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye, and don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the macroverse.